are listening to Food for Thought, a series that takes a bite into food-related stories from the Auckland Library's Heritage Collections and beyond. It's a recipe for good listening. Here art and food historian and baker Alexa Johnston, author of the best-selling Ladies of Plate series, talk about the place of the Edmunds book and the baking powder in her life, most specifically the scone and the ginger crunch recipes. Alexa has researched Thomas Edmunds' book and his exceptional marketing, which established the trusted brand, and 100 years or more on, it still has a hold on people. I was, I was asked recently how the Edmunds book figured in my life, apart from having been asked to revise and rewrite it uh, a few years ago. And like many New Zealanders, I grew up with it in the kitchen. Mm. I mean, mm. my mother was a busy primary school teacher and a minister's wife. And um, her greatest enjoyment came not from cooking or baking, but from reading and sewing. And so she encouraged me when I showed an interest in the kitchen. Um, and the cookbooks that we tended to use were mainly community cookbooks, as many people had. They were from churches and schools and mm. kindergartens and general fundraising community cookbooks. And these were the places in which local women put their best recipes. But we did have a copy of the Edmunds Cookery Book, and the two recipes we used most often, I remember clearly, were ginger crunch and scones. Mm. And of course the scone recipe is on the baking powder tin, and it was scones and sponges that made Edmunds famous. Because if you have a scone that is that hasn't risen and is a bit heavy, or a sponge that even worse that hasn't risen, mm. um, at, at one time when baking was considered quite a test of domestic achievement, um, that would have been a, a, a dire situation, a very embarrassing one. So we always had a tin of Edmunds baking powder in the cupboard. And um, I think Edmunds was well known as a brand. There was no person attached to it. It was just this generic mm. um, tin that was in the cupboard. Well, generic baking powder. It was something that was in the cupboard, always brought out for scones and sponges and probably for baking banana cakes and chocolate cakes. And it was never questioned mm. that Edmunds was good. And the same really applied to the Edmunds cookery book. Although I actually think, to be honest, that not that many people used uh, quite a number of the recipes. Uh, the book got bigger and bigger through the years. I have a number of copies. Yes, I'm just looking at the, the mm. stack of the, yeah, the my... extent of those spiral bindings, which yeah. are pretty full. Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, it started off as a very, I know, the library. What's the library's edition? The library edition? has the 1910 edition. That's 1910. the second edition. Yeah. yeah. So I, my earliest one is the fourth, which is 1923. Mm, still pretty and slim. It's still pretty, it's a slim volume, that's mm, for sure. Mm. Uh, although on the back, there is a map of the world with the Edmunds baking powder tin floating over it and it says the world's flavouring. <laughs> I think that's what it says. Well, the last bit's been covered up with a bit of wallpaper that's been used to mend the spine. Yeah, that's a quite um, an audacious image, yeah. isn't it? It's fantastic. And inside it are some lovely hand-coloured uh, paintings of baking, but also some little circular pieces of paper with recipes on them. Okay. And these used to come inside the top of the tin. Oh. One says shortbread cream, which is a, a basically a, a custard powder. It's a shortbread using Edmunds baking powder and Edmunds custard powder. Yes, it's all a about pinch, having yes, the key yeah. ingredient, isn't um, it? Orange snow, which is made with Edmunds jelly crystals. Mm. So all the recipes that came with were pushing Edmunds products. The problem was that when you got to savoury things, it was a bit hard to put any baking powder or jelly crystals in. And I think some of those recipes were a bit... Um, Questionable, shall best. we say? Yeah. However, nonetheless, we might traverse through we'll, some of we'll those. Go through some of those yeah. later. Yeah. Uh, so, anyway, the Edmunds cookbook it interested me as a as a food historian. It's it's 
place in the hearts of the nation mm. and the kitchens of the nation mm -hmm. uh, when it was a, a brand pushing its own products. Mm. But the product was good. And that's the basic thing. The baking powder was good. Yep. And and TJ Edmonds, who founded the firm, stood by it. And many people know that he used to send free copies of it to people who had got engaged. And the right. engagement notices used to appear in the newspaper in those days, in the early 20th century. And he said, I'll give you a copy of the book and um, you'll buy my baking powder. And, so, yeah, uh, he's a master mm. marketer, really, yeah. wasn't the he? The other thing yeah. he'd done in the very early days was go door to door mm. and knock on doors where women were at home in the kitchen, probably lamenting the fact that their scones hadn't risen. Yeah. And there would be knock, knock, knock on the door. Edmund, TJ Edmonds, this is in Christchurch, of course, saying, here's a tin of baking powder, use it. I'll come back in a week's time. If, if, you, if you aren't thrilled, you can have your money back. Yeah, so and of course, so he it was good marketing, marketing, very clever. And a hundred yeah. years later or more, um, it still has a hold on people. Alexa comments on the crowded market for baking powders with scores of rival baking powders, notably the Tarawera powder, guaranteed to blow up your scones. She goes back to her earliest Edmunds book, the fourth edition from 1924, and talks about the reality of housework at this time. How important it would have been to have baking powder you could rely on in the days when housework was time-consuming, with washing and cleaning, and bought biscuits were not an option. Alexa discusses baking literacy and her approach to setting out the steps for cooking, getting ready, from turning on the oven first and numbering the steps in the process. Hundreds of different baking powders mm, that you could I buy? Th I think scores, more than hundreds. Right. But there were many other brands, yeah. as there are in other parts of the world. But Edmunds was the one that won. Mm. I mean, a, a food historian told, gave a, a lecture about these at one, a conference I was at, and he said that one of the ones that he particularly liked from the 1880s, I think, because baking powder was only invented in the 1850s as a chemical raising agent, mm. um, there was one that was, it was called Tarawera, was the brand. And, of course, the Tarawera eruption had happened in 1877, I think, so it's the 80s. Um, <clears throat> And the slogan was, guaranteed to blow up your scones. Oh, my Lord. So yep. explosive baking powder. That one didn't last. Yeah, sure long. to rise is, sure is, to a, is a winning phrase. It's a winning it? phrase, yeah, yes. It's yeah. cheerful. And, of course, it gave the possibility of using a sunrise as the logo, mm. part of the logo, which was also a master stroke. Yeah. I mean, the designing of the early books I, I really liked. And um, it was, I mean, that, that 1924 edition I've got, um, it says light baking, dainty cooking, sure to rise, and there's a picture of a little house on the cover with home written on the roof and smoke coming out the chimney. So it's, yeah. it's a very endearing, very idealized, uh, idealized it? Yeah. Yes, yeah. world. Hmm. And it still has the the factory that doesn't exist any longer on the on the covered contemporary cover. The yeah. contemporary, yes, the factory was built after this. But hmm. the interesting thing is that um, when you think about women's lives at that time, if you were at home with children. The amount of time that would have been spent doing laundry with the copper in the wash house where you had to get the fire going and boil the water and then plunge the sheets around and then put them through the wringer and, mm. and then um, rinse them and do it again and, and then getting the coal range going so you can make anything. To have your scones or sponge cake turn out perfectly must have been an absolute joy. Oh, yeah. That would have been the nicer part of, um, of domestic life, I think. And also... Um, just being able to, well, it, what scones and sponge are probably special occasion things, but more sponges certainly were. But just the general baking that women had to do, um, 
in order to keep the tins full so that when people popped in you had something to offer them because mm. bought biscuits were just not acceptable for a very long time. Um, uh, to have a baking powder that you could rely on was very, very yeah. important. Yeah, no, it, gave you, it gave you some credibility, I guess, yeah. in, the, in the world. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And I guess it's quite interesting just to explore that kind of baking literacy because I guess our mothers and grandmothers and forebears had a had a kind of confidence about how to make things. Mm. But in your experience now with um, your your cookery books, I guess it's the recipe book has to has to do a whole lot more work because yeah, people I don't have that confidence. That's true, Jane. I mean, when I wrote my books, I had people coming and saying to me, "Oh, when I was when this would be women who were grandmothers, for say, and they would say, when I was young and married, I used to bake." regularly and I remember I made a Louise cake that was out of a, a community cookbook and I used to make it all the time and then I stopped baking and now I've got grandchildren I want to make it again I can't remember which book it is mm. in or I've lost it mm. and I want a really good Louise cake recipe that I can rely on so that's mm. one level of people who still have the skill but have kind of got out of the habit mm. but then there's their children women who for whom baking was a bit of a mystery because their mothers had stopped doing it uh, because they went out to work in the 70s or whatever and and it became not the thing to be spending all your time in the kitchen. Mm. Something I have to say that despite being a career person, I never succumbed to that. I always want to spend time in the kitchen whenever I've got wow. a chance. But, um, but I accept that baking is my enthusiasm and for many people it was a chore and, a, and not a good thing. So it was great not to have to do it and be judged on it. Nonetheless, these women... And that middle generation was saying, well, I want to bake for my kids and I, I don't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. And and very often they had not the foggiest idea about things like you need to turn the oven on before you start baking or when you've got the sponge already and then you turn the oven on, it's going to take 20 minutes to heat up and the sponge will have lost a lot of its oomph. Mm. So what I decided to do with the Edmunds book and had done it with my own books was to have a getting ready section at the beginning of the, of the recipe saying this is what you need to do before you start baking. Mm -hmm. Turn on the oven, get the tins ready, make sure the butter's at room temperature if you're going to cream it. Take the milk out of the fridge as well because things that are at room temperature bind together better or work. And so, and then each stage of the recipe I numbered so that this is what you do first, second, third, fourth. Um, mm. And I applied that when I rewrote this Edmunds cookbook because the Edmunds cookery book had gone on being a book that assumed knowledge that, as you said before, is no longer... Is, is no longer necessarily there. That's and right. And the, then things like the Louise cake, I guess, was was that one that was in the book and then it, it left I the book? Think, or I think, been no. Some I think the Louise cake was probably always in there. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, the, sorry, when I was saying that, I was actually relating to my, my own books because um, I, I tried out a lot of different... Uh, yes, it's in this. I tried a lot of different recipes from community cookbooks and found what I considered to be the best. But... And, and it is in the Edmunds book. But the main thing was that the Edmunds book, earlier books, before my one, didn't have um, the numbering of the stages of a recipe. They just had a list of ingredients and then a whole long paragraph saying all the things that you do. And they certainly didn't say, um, turn on the oven first before you start, oh. that sort of thing. So that was one of the things I needed to bring in. a sense in. of how many it might serve or how many what it might, it might Yeah, make, all that yeah. kind of, or how long it's going to take you. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was when I came to redo the Edmunds book because I had learned from my own books how much cooking knowledge was lost. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah. of course, it's... nowadays people look on the internet, they look on Well, you know, that's a, that's a slippery kind of... slope, looking on the internet. It can you can be, get, yes. You can get all sorts, you know, it's like, 
I think recipes on the internet can be very unreliable. They can be unreliable, but they can also be inaccurate. And they'll often say, oh, this is a really ancient recipe. And that's not an ancient recipe. That's mm. Because people aren't historians. And they just say what they think is right. And good on them, fine. Mm. But you need to take those uh, things with a bit of a pinch of salt. And so... Pinch of salt and some baking powder. And some baking powder, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Alexa discusses the 2016 edition of the Edmunds book and revisits some of the changing recipes through the years impact of the anti-butter phase of the 1990s and our fascination with mock imitation recipes from mock whitebait fritters to mock chicken filling for sandwiches and colonial goose the leg of lamb. You'll get her scoop on pavlova and the recipe she would have included if she'd known about the 2020 lockdown craze for sourdough. Um, I don't know whether everybody is aware that the 2016 edition is the one that you've basically remastered mm. um, and so maybe we'll start talking about that 2016 edition and sort of go backwards into the different looks yeah. and, and um, formats of the previous run so um, yeah if when you did the 2016 you were kind of informed by all the ones that had been before yeah yeah I, because I was also conscious that and all of us will have had this experience of people saying, oh, I always make that out of the Edmunds book. And I would say to people, which edition have you got? Oh, it's just the Edmunds book. Mm. And you'll find it was the 1956, or it was 1976, or the 1983, or the 1995 edition. Many people, had, because they relied on particular recipes, hadn't realised that recipes mm. were changing all the time in yeah. these editions. Because it so, evolved from the 1955 Deluxe, Yeah, the it? Deluxe was the beginning yeah. of the spiral binding. This mm. one here, I think, that's right. the Deluxe, is it? Oh, that's 76, sorry. Anyway, there, there are many mm. editions, mm. and the recipes did change. And the, the way they had changed was reflecting the fashions of the time. Mm -hmm. And so for a time when nobody was supposed to be eating any butter and sugar, or butter, certainly. Thank God those days are over. But anyway, um, a lot of recipes were rewritten by anonymous people, often there's no name put on, to take huge amounts of butter out of them. And what so did they use instead of butter? Nothing. So, you, or, <laughs> so you'd have... Um, or you'd have a what did I come across once it was a recipe for icing that had a quarter of a teaspoon of butter in it mm. and what I think is you might as well spit in it as put in a quarter of a teaspoon <laughs> of butter I mean if you don't have any butter in the icing to make a glacé icing but uh, it was crazy mm. and the, the carrot cake was one that really got me mm. because I I realised that it came in I think in the 70s and it was an American recipe, one of the easy mixed ones that uses oil instead of butter, so that you didn't have to cream any butter and sugar, which mm. was always a bit of a challenge. And uh, it had grated carrot, it was supposed to be healthy, and then it had that icing that everybody loves with the um, cream cheese and, and icing frosting. sugar. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's actually a cream cheese icing oh, okay. on the carrot cake. Yeah, like the frosting's thick. another, yeah, yeah thick yeah. cream cheese icing mm -hmm. with lemon in it. Anyway, <clears throat> and a bit of spice and things. And when I compared, because I used to do these spreadsheets of the recipes, all the different editions, that... Basically, the sugar went down, the oil went down, the carrot went up, the flour went up, and I made the final recipe, which was from the 90s, and it was almost inedible. Mm. It was supposed to be healthy, but it was almost inedible. So for my edition, I returned to the carrot cake of its former glory. And, and well, thank I, you for I, that. Thank you. And I had, did have people saying to me, the Christmas pudding, or one person in particular, Anne-Elle, said the Christmas pudding in the 60s was brilliant. They've taken it out. They've put in one that's got not the right ingredients anymore. So I put that one back in. So what I saw my job as returning the good recipes, 
don't try and do baking without butter if you're a New Zealander because that's our tradition. Mm. You know, you can make something it's good with oil, butter, but too, it's good yeah. butter in New mm. Zealand. And um, then and accept the fact that baking is a treat. Baking isn't what you live on. It's mm. a treat. It's, when you bake for someone, you're showing that you love them. It's and it's a special treat. It's not everyday huge amounts of this, that, and the other. But I remember I did have one woman say to me that she'd made the chocolate caramel slice out of my book. This is not Edmunds now, I'm talking about my own mm. book, uh, my first book, um, for her grandchildren. They absolutely loved it. And, she, and her daughter had said, will you make it? And she said, never. It's so unhealthy. <laughs> and I thought, well, those poor children, you could have made them for them. I mean, being mean, but you could have made that for them twice a year. Yeah. It's not going to... It's a grandmother's a, a job, isn't grandmother's it? Grandmother's job yeah. to make yummy things yeah. occasionally. Yeah. So anyway, that was what I was trying to do, was bring back the joy and deliciousness in the baking. And also checking through all the savoury things to make mm. sure that oh, yeah. some of the bad recipes weren't still there. Because to be honest, there were some appalling recipes. In, in the international section, International perhaps? section was particularly yep. bad. I mm. mean, I, I do remember the um, sweet and sour pork. There's so many tins of pineapple and corn flour and heaven knows where it's had nothing to... Well, it, it's, a, it's a food group and it's own that kind of Europeanised sweet and sour pork. But I thought, we don't actually need that. Let's do some a nice something with cashew mm. nuts or whatever. And then I also... Um, <clears throat> what was another one I took out that was terrible? Oh yes, the one I was telling you. There was a recipe for something. Now we most of us know now, many people anyway, that in Japan you can get these delicious vegetable and fr and seafood thin fritters thinly veiled in a very fine batter that are called tempura. In mm. Japan, mm. well, the Edmunds book had crispy Chinese tempura with an O instead of a U. Yeah. And mm. as, I mean, mm. I know I'm a silly pedant, but I did find that ludicrous. So those sort of things went. But some wonderful things like the mock white baked fritters and mock Ooh, chicken. Yeah. We've Talk got a real tradition mock, of mock white baked stuff. fritters. Is a, that's a really interesting one. Yeah, um, well, it's basically grated potato and fritters. Mm. So they're la like latkes from Poland mm. or the kind of fritters they make in uh, Asia as well. With and then you potato. gave a, a nice tip for um, making them look more like white bait. Yeah, that's right. You can just sprinkle in some poppy seeds and those little black eyes you get in white <laughs> They taste nothing like white bait fritters, but they look a bit like them. And yeah. so, and then mock chicken is mm. a sandwich filling made with hard-boiled eggs mashed up with mayonnaise and with some mixed herbs in it because mixed herbs is what used to go in the stuffing for oh, a roast chicken. Okay. So it tasted a bit chickeny, but it didn't have any chicken in it. And then there was also, because we have a whole tradition of colonial goose in New Zealand, which was a leg of lamb made to look like a roast goose. So we have a lot of a mock tradition mm, here. We do. And I thought we needed the mock white baked yeah. fritters. And I think also, I wanted, I mean, for example, curried sausages. Now, there's no way that anyone in India would recognise that sweet, bright yellow, mm. sort of gluey sauce on sausages that but my grandmother used to make. And she used to put some of her fruit chutney in, and we used to like it. Mm. So I thought, well, let's keep the curried sausages. I mean, no, they're kind of part of the heritage of the British colonisation of India, where a whole lot of things got put into thick curry-flavoured sauces with, you know, packet curry powder, which Indians wouldn't use. But anyway, mm. but they've got their own place in people's hearts. But I, one thing that changed I made was that we, rather than fry the sausages to start with, we just steamed or simmered them and then peeled them and oh, put the, them into the, the curry healthy sauce. version. It was a healthy version. Yeah. That's right, Jane. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's lovely to have things that relate to New Zealand's life and culture. Exactly. And so things that I'm finding in the, in the current one, like the Lady Smith cake, yes. when you can refer it back to the 
1900 Boer War. Mm. Um, it's it's good to get that context. Yes, and well, that, yeah. well, that's one I'd discovered in, a, in an old cookbook that someone lent me from Dunedin because uh, when I was doing my own books, and I thought I'm going to put that in Edmund's book. It's such a yummy cake, mm. and it was a New Zealand invention. Um, at a particular time in our history, yeah. and of course the the classic debate about the pavlova, which will will kind of it'll be an eternal war between Australia and New Zealand. But your scoop on it on page one hundred ninety one um, brings it credits it to the New Zealand dairy exporter from nineteen twenty nine. Yes. So that's that's helpful in, yes. in the old debate. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think as um, Helen Leach has said, a, fun, a wonderful food historian from Leiden, Professor Helen Leach, she said, well, I wrote a book about the pavlova. Basically, this is about evolution, not creation. There's a creation myth, but recipes tend to evolve. And a, pav a meringue cake um, with a crisp outside and a marshmallow interior has been around for a while, but the, the naming of it seems to have been happened in Australia, mm. uh, but it was being made here. And But there were other things called pavlovas too. I mean, her book talks about little coffee-flavoured meringues and also a jelly that were called pavlova. Okay. Because Anna Pavlova, who had yeah. come here as the great Russian ballerina, spawned a whole lot of recipes mm. um, that were supposed to be about lightness and delicacy mm. and, and beauty. She must have been a spellbinding visit. I yeah. think so, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so um, I know some of the things that have gone back, like um, we've talked about the international foods, there was also the invalid section <laughs> that um, maybe was one that got referred to at, at certain sort of times of stress. Well, the invalid section appears in a lot of New Zealand community cookbooks, and I do have a big collection of those. Mm. The, I, the point was that when people were sick, they the, it was thought that they could only eat very unexciting food. Junket, for example, or not, not upset the digestion. Not to upset the digestion. Mm. But in fact, nowadays you tend to think when people don't have a good appetite and need to eat more, you tend to want things that will stimulate them. It doesn't have to be strongly flavoured, you know, super filled with chilli and whatever, but it needs to be attractive. Mm. And one of the things about the invalid food section was that it all seemed to look pale, creamy white, mm. which for most of us is not the most appetising. Not um, at all. But I did... Um, I did realise that you needed to have some things that were, um, you know, easy to cook and and um, so I, I there's there's a lot of stuff that was that was left in there. Actually, I'm just looking at the list of all the recipes that I deleted. Honestly, it was quite a lot. Dominion pudding. <sighs> yeah, it's, a, yeah. It's, a, it's an evolving process, and I well, think that's that's that. I think you were talking about the grandfather spade idea that yeah. it's a it's a new handle and it's a new. Uh, blade, in fact, yes. and so um, people's idea of the Edmonds book as an archetypal thing—it's actually a dynamic process. It's a, exactly, Jane. It evolves as we evolve, mm. and uh, as I said, when it was thought bad to be eating butter, they took the butter out of a lot of the recipes, and that was done with the best of intentions, I'm sure. But some of them, you might as well, you should have deleted them rather than change them. I suppose that's the point. Mm. Uh, but I did try to put things in that. I knew, um, I put in some how-to sections, going back to our earlier comments about people not quite understanding how to do things, because although the book is put out by a baking powder or a baking company, really, um, it does have savoury recipes, and it always prided itself on being the kind of book that you could give to your you know, niece or nephew or daughter or son who was leaving home to go flatting and they'd be able to make basic things mm, from it. They could survive, yeah. Nowadays, probably, they'll just go out and eat takeaways. But anyway, that's fine. Well, Uber you know, Eats. Uh, Uber yeah. Eats. Yeah. But 
I thought, okay, well, we need to know um, how to, uh, well, no, we need to know. I wanted to put in things like how to cook perfect rice, how to roast meat. If you want to have, do roast meat, people don't know how to do a roast. Mm. And that, or how, how to roast a chicken, how to roast pork and get crackling, how to make perfect pastry, how to make a perfect sponge cake is another one, how to mm. make a perfect fruit cake, how to make Scott perfect biscuits. So I, I mean, I'm overstating the case in terms of perfect in some cases, but I did feel like you need to know those things, so how to make delicious jam if you want to be a cook. Well, I think so, and I think at the moment, um, in the kind of year of the lockdown, mm. this is when people have been thinking, you know what, I really need mm. that, that ideal meal and this is going to help them. This is going to, yeah. yeah. And I think also, I mean, if I'd known about lockdown, I probably would have put in there how to make sourdough bread because everybody's <laughs> actually making sourdough bread. Well, you've got focaccia, I see. Yeah, I have got focaccia, yeah. Uh, but I like the, I did have a thing on how to make great bread, but I think, and I, and we've talked about the fact that I returned crumpets, which are a form of quick bread, really, that mm. you're sure you can buy a packet for a couple of dollars at the supermarket, but it's just flour and water and yeast and a little bit of baking soda at the end, and you can make the most delicious crumpets at home and pouring the batter into the rings and cooking them on the stove. So um, encouraging people to rediscover the fun of making some old-fashioned things was another of my intentions with this book. Um, and I, oh, how to make stock was another thing, how to make soup, because they are the basis of, mm, the basis mm. of, of much cooking. And, yeah. um, and so that, that all got added in, yeah. You can visit the Food for Thought exhibition at Tāmaki Pātaka Kōrero, the Auckland Central City Library from the 28th of September to the 31st of January 2021. It's a feast from Auckland Library's heritage collections, rare books, manuscripts, menus, posters and oral histories, with stories of Auckland life from kitchen table to restaurant banquet. No mai mai. no reservation required. <laughs>